Yeah, it's happening now. Here in the hot house. Here in the hot in house. In the hot house. So many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome to So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have Robin Sloan with us in the FSG offices. <laughs> We're usually in the damn library, but... For this 75th episode of So Many Damn Books, we thought we would bring the podcast to Robin. Yeah. Robin Sloan, you, um, perhaps you know this, but the, <laughs> but the uh, listeners might not. It, uh, he is the author of Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore and uh, grew up in Michigan and splits his time between the Bay Area and the internet. And you also are the writer, writer of this book, Sourdough. That's right. And I'm really happy to be here with you guys. Thanks for coming out. Yeah. Thanks for being in New York and, um, and for writing such a fantastic book. Um, but before we get to it, oh yeah, I want to talk about this drink that I made. Uh, mobile style made <laughs> back at my apartment and transported in a vacuum um, thermos. Is it really a vacuum thermos? So it's pineapple syrup that I made at home, uh, light rum, Campari, and an East India sherry. Um, and all of that's in equal parts and I'm poured into a coupe and I'm calling it the voice of the mags. I would pay 15 to $17 for this cocktail. Wow. Hey. It's really good. It's Whoa. really good. And it has that, it has that funkiness, which I think is, uh, appropriate. Um, of course you guys know that cause you've read the book, but, um, there's some funkiness in this novel and yeah, I, feel I, like I can taste it here. <laughs> when I was, um, when I was trying to come up with the cocktail, I was Googling like, like if someone had already tried like cocktails to pair with your new sourdough loaf, like nice. I, thought, I thought like, Oh, maybe I'll. But uh, no one has made that list yet, so this I don't know if you want to make me want to just like bite it like a really nice, rich sourdough. No, mm -hmm. and if you know mm -hmm. Eater comes by and it's like Robinson, we need something from you. You can be <laughs> like, I have a list of cocktails. I am ready to go. <laughs> Full pairing menu. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that's the drink. Shall we talk about what we bought? Yeah, that's probably the thing we should do next. I think let's do it. You should you should talk about what you bought, Drew. Uh, so I am a fan of literature in translation, and I am trying to broaden my translation horizons. Uh, and I was at Strand a little while ago, and I saw this book, None Like Her, by Jela Krečić. Um, she's a Serbian author, and I was like, wow, this seems really cool. I've never read anything uh, from here. And I discovered this company, uh, Peter Owen World Publishers. They're a British company, and they are dedicating themselves twice a year to putting out three books from a, a country from around the world that's never been translated into English before. So they've done Slovenia, Spain, and Serbia. Uh, and they actually were nice enough to send along a couple more that I've been unable to find in the States so far. But I'm super excited about it. Like, who's ever read a book from Slovenia? I, if I did, I didn't know. So I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to yeah, that's see so where it cool. goes. That's yeah. awesome. And and it's I think that's a really amazing thing to be excited about and to be rooting for because of course often these houses, especially the ones that focus on the on the literature and translation, 
it's they're not like sending boxes and pallets of books at the door and yeah. it's like it's actually very meaningful for them to get uh to find a new fan who's going to be like i'll take one of everything you i was have. gonna say <laughs> i might not ever read it but i want it and i want the option of like you know what yes i do want to read something from papua new guinea today yeah i well that'd be cool what a world what <laughs> a world we live in anyway uh what did you buy robin well um i actually bought it on the day that sourdough was published um and i was kind of walking around san francisco feeling a little weird like i was supposed to be doing something but there wasn't anything to do Mm -hmm. so i decided i ought to just go buy a book i was kind of like you know (laughs) pay to pay homage Uh to the to the gods of buying and selling books um so i went to um, a great bookstore called dog-eared books Mm. on valencia street and i was kind of rifling through their mystery section and i found a copy great old you know old-timey paperback copy of murder on the orient express by agatha christie cool which i had never read before and didn't really know much about Uh, i've slowly been becoming more aware of kind of the conventions of that old school orthodox mystery genre like mm-hmm. they, they present these puzzles that you're supposed to be able to solve or right. like, like the information is all there nothing is actually being withheld um, for the very observant reader and uh, yeah I actually read it on the plane on the plane flight um, that was the first leg of my book tour and it did was awesome you, um, did you figure it out or did 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 Inspector Clue so? Nope. <laughs> Poirot. 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 That was close, though. <laughs> um, uh, there was, it was my first encounter. This was my first encounter with Poirot, and uh, I did not figure it out. I figured out a few intervening things. There's a few mini mysteries along the way, and there was one that I had a hunch, and I was proud of myself for getting it right. But the final thing, I mean, her her reputation is well earned because yeah. it's a, it was a real curveball. I'm very excited about the um, adaptation. I think it looks. It's just like everyone. Yeah. Um and and a mustache, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and starring Kenneth Branagh and Kenneth Branagh's mustache. Yeah, wow. Yeah, uh, it's pretty wild. All right, Christopher, how about you? Um, I purchased uh, Hannah Tinty's new novel, uh, Twelve Lives of Samuel Hawley, and I'm so intrigued. I um thought The Good Thief by her was so great, and um and she's actually doing another sort of um intergenerational connection. Like that was The Good Thief was like a like an older person, um, you know, taking a kid under their wing and teaching them thievery. This one is a father-daughter, though, a teenage girl and her father. And uh, the dad's criminal past is, like, coming back to haunt them. And he has 12 scars. So it's the 12 stories of his 12 scars. That's cool. Honestly, honestly, you didn't have me until that last (laughs) detail. And uh, now I'm like, yes, I'm sold. I'm in. Yeah, I'm into that, too. Um, So, yeah, Hannah Tinty, excited. Cool. But I'm really excited to talk to you, Robin Sloan, about your novel, Sourdough. It is an, such a fun, amazing book. Do you want to so tell uh, a little listeners what it's about? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, the story starts with a young programmer who has just moved from Michigan, which happens to be where I'm from as well, to the San Francisco Bay Area. And as the novel opens, she has this job working in a robot factory. Um, and it's exciting, but it's also stressful. And one of the sort of central dilemmas of her life is just like feeding herself there's mm-hmm. this like daily challenge like what am i supposed to eat for a bunch of different reasons as it happens um she comes into contact with a mysterious sourdough starter you know this kind of bubbling living substance that you use to to bake sourdough bread she doesn't know anything about it when she first gets it but she starts to learn more about it and of course it turns out to be stranger than it appears 
and it lures her into the wider world of Bay Area food. Mm. Wow. That yeah. is well nutshelled. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, I mean, really, this, this novel is sort of a story of like reconciling two things that seem like they're at war, you know, tech versus analog, mm-hmm. even though, I mean, one of the things that the novel really drives home, and I, I'd never had this idea before, but that food is technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how did you reconcile these forces? Are these within you that are f- always fighting or... No, I mean, I'm, first of all, I'm glad to hear that you got that out of the book because I think it's in there too, but you can never be sure, you know, if these ideas kind of emerge or if they make it out the other end of the whole process. I, um, you know, this is true of the, of the last novel too, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. People often talk about both of them as being framed as this, you know, sort of tension between old and new and, and part of it is realizing that new technologies, you know, actually can be really interesting and healthy and, you know, open up new possibilities for thoughtful practitioners. But there's another part of it that I actually take a little more seriously. It's like more important to me than that. And that's giving the old stuff, like these traditional things or things that we think of as being really familiar, giving them credit Mm. as like serious technology. And that's true for, you know, the technology that is books and bookmaking and printing. And I personally think it's also true for these arts and crafts like cooking and baking and, you know, fermentation and all of that. Yeah, that, I think it really comes through. Yeah, there's something really cool about the the way that you set up this story that feels like it's going to be very um, near tech. future and tech heavy. And it takes these lovely turns that you're just like, oh, yeah, because when you do when you are sitting in a kitchen and you smell something nice and you look up from your phone, it was that feeling of like being brought back into the world from this technological future that we seem inevitably moving towards. Yeah. I was thinking uh, J-Pod by Douglas Copeland or something like the Like at that beginning um, felt re- very much like that's what I was being set up for. Um, I mean, but food is just so satisfying to read about. Why? What do you think that is? Oh, boy, that's a good question. I don't know what it is. I was noticing it, even in the most incidental ways. I was reading this um, novel I picked up totally by chance called Dark Star by the writer Alan First, this great kind of spy novel. I didn't know anything about that writer or the book. It totally blew my socks off. Rewind. It totally knocked my socks off. (laughs) (laughs) And um, one of the things that he does so well is just drop in these little incidental moments of eating and, mm. of, and like describing what people are eating. And of course it's meaningful. Like they're eating, you know, the food of their nation or something that's obviously important or, or comfortable to them or something that makes them feel powerful. Like the way they can offer the food to someone else. It just, I guess maybe it becomes a substrate for almost anything that you want to communicate through it. Right. Mm. It can be about, power or kind of you know a comedy of manners or it can be about things that are very technical and sort of you know sci-fi it's just like it's a medium through which to say interesting things yeah i think you're i think you're right and for 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 sourdough she's she's discovering herself like i think that that's so um it's it's so old but it's so it's so vital yeah and i mean again this is what i think i put into it so who knows if it comes out the other end but She's finding out how she wants to work or what kind of work she wants mm-hmm. to do. I mean, for me, th- this is a tension I felt for a long time, and I actually still feel it to some degree, the tension between um, the kind of work you do in the kitchen. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever made dumplings. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're very fun to make. You get to make them with other people, and they're delicious to eat. But 
every time I do it, I feel like, oh man. And also I'm not a good dumpling maker. So each one takes me like, <laughs> each one takes me like five minutes. As I'm doing, I'm like, I'm going to eat this in like four seconds. <laughs> this is not, this is not a good trade off. Like whatever. And still, and I mean, I know that's the point. Like that's actually what it is. You like spend this time and put all this care into it and then it's delicious and it's gone. But I guess on some level that sort of bothers me. And, and of course that's probably why I was into technology and like computer stuff in the first place and even into books because those are things that you put the work in but then the product is not consumed. Mm. Right. It, you know, you write a book and it can be copied and shared basically forever without your participation. Right. And, and technology lasts forever too. Yeah. Or certain, or certain, now. <laughs> certain at least certain artifacts do. Right. Um, although funny, like fewer and fewer, you know, you think about like old phones that are totally these inert bricks and you're like, you don't even know what you would ever do with them. But basically that, that tension between like the kinds of work you can do, like this repetitive work or this work where you kind of do something once and then it sticks around. I don't know. I just find it very compelling and I think about it a lot myself. Yeah. Has this saying reached uh, the New York area? This is like on the lips of everyone, unfortunately, in the San Francisco Bay Area, particularly the tech world, this sort of uh, maxim software is eating the world have you guys heard this Ooh, Ooh. no but yeah i mean it is it, i love it because it's it's like somehow like both utopian and dystopian yeah it's, it's just a weird sort of a weird idea yeah and and it's exactly that this notion that as these tools these particularly these kind of software tools and the things we can do on screens as they get more powerful they they literally kind of consume more and more of these tools and actually whole industries that used to stand alone yeah right? you're right well, I, it's um, happening in food, too. I mean, you even kind of refer to it. Uh, meal replacements seem very intriguing to you. <laughs> um, there's a lot of, on the page there. Uh, did you try one? I mean... Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Um, uh, I had heard about Soylent, which, mm -hmm. of course, is sort of the inspiration for I my... I can't understand why they named it that. I know. It's... it's, it's like... I've, I think it's to have this conversation every single time. Maybe. Every so single time maybe, it comes up. Maybe they've tallied the free marketing sort of mojo they get from people <laughs> arguing about this. Like, it's so worth it. You guys are all playing by our script. Yeah. yeah. I can't I can't believe it either. It seems unthinkable that yeah, you would. I, d <laughs> <laughs> like, I, just, yeah. I just see Donald Sutherland screaming and I'm like, I, Soylent. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it's the equivalent of like putting a label on their thing like ground human stuff. I mean, not really. It's a joke. <laughs> yeah. It is. I can report that um, it's not terrible. Just no, as a thing to I've consume. Well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I tried it for three days and uh, felt fine, but definitely felt like I was missing food. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. It's like I like, wasn't looking for this. Like this wasn't a problem in my life. Like it was of the um, the founder where he's like, where and and also of of the protagonist is that they they were really curious about what to eat. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and that's where actually, in a way, that's where I feel the most sympathy for Soylent, the product, and, and the people who use it. Mm -hmm. Because exactly that um, that sort of stress that he, the founder, articulates, um, I don't feel that in way anymore. But if Soylent had been available in maybe 2006 or 2007, I think I would have been a customer, not just yeah. as an, not as an experiment, but exactly to solve that problem of like, what am I supposed to eat? Just give me something to eat. Yeah. We're talking a lot about these these intersections of 
technology and food and the world that keeps on changing. Mm-hmm. And a thing that I kept thinking about as I was reading this book and cracking eggs, uh, which I can do one-handed pretty well. I would say like seven times out of ten, it's a, it's perfect. The other three times, I'm like, oh, i got to get that. How much of this novel... Oh, to say for listeners who maybe haven't read the book, there's say. a robot that is trying to learn how to one-handed crack an egg. Right. Um, because of all of the the millions of things that are happening inside our bodies when we do that motion that we're not thinking about. And robots are not that smart yet, thank God. Um, how much of this is is real and how much of it is near real in this book? Like, what what's the line you feel like you're walking? Um... I don't think it's a line. I think it's a fuzzy sort of, you know, <laughs> shadow, like the place where like shadow ramps into light and it's all fuzzy and mottled because um, it's definitely both. Uh, in this book, I will say that I tried to make it essentially hard sci-fi, even though it's not really sci-fi, but I tried to play by those rules, which is to say, obey physics, uh, introduce no magic. Right. And, you know, there's a this essentially a character in the book that is a sourdough starter that exhibits strange behavior. And there are many times when I thought, oh, it'd be cool if it just started talking, you know, like really talking or if it was like a little demon, you know, creature. Like there's a lot of fun you could have with that, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sort of a dark fairy tale about a starter that comes to life. But I just decided I didn't want to write that book. I wanted to write one that takes place in our real world and plays by our rules. That said, um, I did take many things that exist in the world, like very dexterous robot arms and, you know, molecular biology and sort of splicing the splicing of those genomes. And I definitely like dialed them forward into the future and kind of amped it into hyper reality. Cool. That I feel like you play with that line always. I mean, there was a little bit of the line playing in Mr. Penumbra as well. Yeah. Um, is your, I mean, I, I, are you, was talking about this book with my mom, who's also a big fan, by the way. Um, she uh, and she really wants your San Francisco to be the real one. And I'm and I'm curious. Uh, <laughs> do you feel like you live in that San Francisco, or are you are you uh, fantasizing a bit? Boy, that is a really really good question. It's changed, of course. I mean, like any city is dynamic, and um, I will confess that when I read Mr. Penumbra's Twenty Four Hour Bookstore, it feels more and more like a report from. A different time and even at the time it was written it was probably an, a sort of optimistic gloss so it's not the san francisco it's not the documentary portrayal but you know i i always try to stay conscious of the fact that people read a lot of things um i think that you guys understand that and <laughs> oh. <laughs> listeners <laughs> listeners of this podcast probably are like yes yes we do um, <laughs> but that's actually really important and i think what it means is that um in I think it's, it's actually arrogant to presume that your depiction of anything, uh, you know, a time, a place, a movement, an idea should or even could be comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, this is it. I've captured it and nailed it down on the page. You hear people talk about doing that. And I just, I mean, I, I guess I'm not convinced it should even be attempted because people don't just read one thing. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, um, I would say that now, especially, there's a lot of really good criticism of Silicon Valley yeah. technology and the way these things are playing out and the economics and the politics of them. And that's like very important, welcome, productive stuff. I think maybe it's useful to have another sort of tile in that mosaic that still tries to kind of capture that, that more hopeful mm. environment. Yeah. I feel I, that. I do too. I visited San Francisco for the first time last summer and I read Penumbra, uh, Josh Moore's Damascus, and Tales from the City. 
And I feel like the city that I encountered was like the triangulation of those. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I feel like each of those almost exists. Like you could just go to that San Francisco. Uh, but to, you know, it is like it's a it's a huge city. It's like nobody's trying to do the definitive New York novel. They're like maybe the definitive New Manhattan novel or like the definitive 78th Street novel. Right. I like that. I like that. What's like how how fine do you have to go <laughs> yeah. to even have a shot at it? It's like, well, I believe that I've captured the block between the seventh and eighth at about you know Eighteenth Street. Or conversely, like I have to admit, I think I nailed it. The great novel of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm gonna. The novel I'm writing, I'm just gonna make sure that to say that that's what I've been writing the whole time. It's the great novel of Canada. Yeah. It's not set there. <laughs> it's, it's not. But it's the great novel of Canada. You know, it can be done. I read a book. Uh, it's a book out recently by a great novelist, San Francisco novelist named Andrew Sean Greer. The title of the book is Less, and it's about a writer who is based in San Francisco, but hardly any of it actually takes place in the city. Somehow, it is like one of the great San Francisco novels, hmm. even without ever being there just because he <laughs> is san francisco and he's on the road and he kind of carries it with him is awesome wow, cool. that sounds great so you could definitely yeah so your great canadian novel which is going to be set entirely uh you know in brooklyn yeah <laughs> <laughs> perfect the world the world is waiting <laughs> so sourdough and this this line between uh real and near real i was thinking about it a lot over the summer as the world does its thing and as i was watching twin peaks uh and i i finished watching the finale of twin peaks and then finally i was like shit i have to get to eugene lim's book uh dear cyborgs so that we can talk about it here and that book did the same thing like your book takes a um this sort of like happier like, what if we turned towards utopia view of real, near real? And Eugene's book is felt very similar to what David Lynch does of like, let's not even talk about happy or sad. Let's just talk about really real or maybe not quite. Mm. And it just, it was like, it was the right thing at the right moment for me. It was the correct Twin Peaks chaser. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel like that could actually be a very effective like strap line. Yeah. You know, to sell a book, just yeah. be like, you know, up at the top, it's a real Twin Peaks chaser, <laughs> a little sticker. Yeah, that'd um, be really good. Um, so I'd, I'd love to know why you brought it to us. Mm -hmm. What was the thing that... that uh, I brought it because it had been in my pile to read. Um, I really admire the the publisher, um, <laughs> <laughs> which whose office we're sitting in. But in, but in particular, so it's not just FSG proper, this, their, their imprint FSG originals yeah. that yeah. Emily Bell oversees. Um, they do these paperback originals. I don't know how you guys feel about this. I believe that the paperback is the ideal reading format, particularly the sort of like slender, whippy little paperback. Since these guys started, I feel the same way. It's the right size. It fits in your hand. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, so so I'm just a fan of everything they do in a way that I can't say is true for actually that many other publishers. Like I would just straight up subscribe to FSG Originals mm -hmm. if yep. that was an option. So this had come out. Um, the title intrigued me and like a little blurb sounded interesting with kind of threaded through with comic books and nerd culture and some and some of that, you know, surrealism. And so it's sitting in my stack, but I could sense that it was going to kind of just hover in that sort of upper middle part of the stack mm -hmm. unless I had a reason to read it. So uh, I told you guys we're going to read it. So, nice. So that I would read it too. 
So, so you you encountered it for the first time with us. Yeah, then. that's right. Um, it's a it's a strange it's a really strange book. It's um, it's sort of teaches you how to read it after you're done reading it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, um, that is that's very well put. Uh, which I was I thought was really strange. Like, what? Why not have that at the beginning? Like, uh, really brave. On it, like I'm. That's a bold move to be like, when you finish this book, you will understand how to read the book. Yeah. There's, it's, we should probably say what it's about, but I don't really know how to do it. Um, It is. I, let me say one more sort of vague thing about it. Maybe that will lead us to a description. Um, Yeah, it is, it is both brave and strange. And I found myself, you know, especially about a third of the way in, I realized that I didn't love it. I maybe even didn't like it. But I had this like deep affection growing mm-hmm. for it. And and then as I kept reading, I realized it was the same kind of affection I have towards the people I know. I'm sure you guys have friends like this too, who are just like so smart and so interesting and have such like amazing things to say about the world, but also just have sort of a hard time being in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Either because they can't or won't, they don't just like do the things that make it easy. Mm-hmm. to like have a conversation yeah. or be with them. And and I I mean, some of the characters in this book are sort of those people, but then I feel like the book is that person too. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That, I, that's really good. It's it's definitely like that because it's like, rec- it's it's sort of recursive too, where you read a one chapter and it sort of explains the last chapter, but really it explains three chapters before where that came from. Um, and... I, I was also jury is still out whether I feel like all of that mixing around um, achieved ended up achieving something. It was in- intriguing, but I wasn't sure when I finished it if it um, added to it or if it just made it for like like a, a crossword, like an interesting puzzle for mm. a, over like a weekend. Um, but uh, yeah, so I wasn't sure that it reached something greater. But at the same time, like all of those little pieces are so interesting. Yeah, there's I, a lot to like carry away from this book, little moments and ideas. I laughed every time someone. Okay, so there's this like ongoing conversation between a few friends, and um, who also happen to be superheroes. Yes, but you don't really. They only are superheroes for like a few pages. They're like off duty. They're like at the karaoke bar. I think that was my favorite one. They're like, "Do you want to do karaoke tonight?" And they're yeah. like, "Yeah, okay." Yeah. Yeah, just like usual. Yeah. Um, and you're following this conversation that they're having. It's very long. Um, and every time they finish an idea and someone else brings in, I was laughing at just like, I agree. Like the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the, the wanting to like, I have something for that. Like, but having to like transition out of the story that someone else told and bring it into your thing that you want to say to add to the conversation, I, I could relate. Um, but I also thought it was so funny the way that they like were, were crazy excited and enthusiastic, um, towards each other. Yeah. And it's and the things that they, those things that they introduce, they're not small things. They're like either these big meaty stories that could almost be little standalone short stories, like these wonderful little slices of life. And they're like weird and or sad or like really real, or there'll be these like blocks of sort of philosophy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'll just be like, (laughs) political (laughs) philosophy, which I actually like. I mean, I've heard of this thing. I've like the I know there's an idea of like a philosophical novel, mm-hmm. but I don't know that I've ever read one. Or I mean, I started reading one of the Anne Rand books and was like, nah, that's like not the kind of you know, like novel of philosophy that I want to read. Yeah, but I don't know. I actually would be curious to know if, if if it struck you guys that way. Like, was this a 
philosophical novel? Was it yes. actually about kind of like sliding some some pretty like deep, serious political philosophy into into our brains? I would absolutely call it one because it really is a vehicle for his ideas on um, sort of radical inclusion of uh, progressive ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and as well as he really wanted to talk about the shape of technological conversations that they that we aren't having new new shapes to these things. Right. It seemed like they he almost made every conversation I've ever had about technology feel like silly um, in just like eight lines of dialogue between two characters. I thought that was really effective. I saw some review online. I it was like the log line was that it's the first great Occupy novel. And it, it made me think, I mean, not just because there are a couple of scenes that take place in or around the Occupy Wall Street protests, but it kind of has that spirit of, of upvoting everybody. Like, we're not going to talk over everybody, the human megaphone thing. But then it, it's like, it's not afraid to at one moment be talking about serious sociopolitical philosophy and the next moment to be talking about technology and the next moment to be talking about art mm-hmm. and treat all of them exactly the same way. And like it, yeah, it doesn't always work, but it's great to try. I I felt like that, that was a sort of strange thing sometimes because it felt like a little bit of whiplash maybe with the philosoph- philosophical conversation slamming right into like a sudden two page, like, you know, destroy the mainframe. Right. And uh, again, you, you wonder that's that sort of, um, is it a, inability to make that smoother or a, or a refusal to do so. Yeah. Someone saying like, you know what? Yeah, I'm not going to make small talk. I'm not going to make this easy because I think these things are really important or I want to present it to you that way. Yeah, I kind of felt like um, it, it was sort of like um, a text version or of describing like GIFs or something that I like inside of like <laughs> a, you know, um, a, a more book reviews and, and um, essays are being written with those little um, textual oh, yeah. changes in them and I sort of felt like that was like almost like referencing like a random like like oh here's a little superhero gif like as I go to my next idea that's actually really interesting that tool that's actually become kind of a go-to of online writing those sudden mode changes punctuated by these these weird artifacts mm-hmm. of course it's not available yet on the page that's interesting you know yeah. I'm, I'm just going to choose to believe that that was that's the, what he was the strategy doing. because it's too cool to, just, <laughs> to deny I want that to be the case The other thing um, that I loved about this book, um, and I always appreciate it when writers do this, was all the hypothetical art projects. Oh, yeah. Right? The, the 12, the woman with the 12 pieces. Oh, my God. Yeah, only 12 pieces can exist at once. So you, even if you buy one, you have, to, you have to buy 12 and still delete as she's making that's right that's right there will only ever be 12 there's like a whole there's like there's a a probably probably almost a dozen of these like very like well thought out interesting art projects and the reason i always admire it so much is i i understand the appeal you get to sort of execute these ideas without having to actually like become a proficient (laughs) painter and spend all the time and execute these ideas but in a way you know you make them real on the page and you can have people respond to them i think it's just one of the great one of the great sort of things afforded by fiction and so anyone who doesn't throw at least a few you know hypothetical art projects into their novel is leaving a opportunity on the table (laughs) i also love that when um he did refer to certain art 
or some art was just real. Like it was stuff that you can Google and look up. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of, of reading a book like this with my phone in my hand, even though I usually hate to do that, but I really wanted to see and hear the things that he's referencing mm. so much, but even in the karaoke bar, like I put, I queued up those songs because I wanted to hear what, what it was that he was like populating the novel with in that way. That's awesome. That's, ah, that's so interesting. I, th- I think that people, novel writers should write with that expectation now. Um, and, and, and the expectation that people have easy access to a search bar. I think it's, um, yeah, unlike so many other places where phones kind of intersect with other things that we're doing, I don't think that's dystopian or depressing. I think it's actually really exciting. Yeah, that I you think can so just too. jump off and sort of, you know, go down the rabbit hole. Well, and that, like, I can see that bizarre, like, there's a point of one of the more plotty things that happens where he, he's trying to bring this art um, piece that was requested in a sort of ransom um, with this character, Mrs. Miss Mistletoe. And um, I forget what the art piece is, but I, I looked it up online and it is so huge and so <laughs> difficult That's to awesome. maneuver that it made it so much better right. to, to nice. um, think like he had to carry that on a sledge of a mountain. That's awesome. Amazing. Right. Right. That's right. I remember that scene, but for me, the art was just sort of a void, kind of a little fuzz like, oh, art, a painting or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So it's really, it is really strange. Um, I did that a little bit actually with sourdough. Mm-hmm. I looked up i so i i've seen the market at the ferry terminal but i was like i wonder if all of this other secret stuff is and like but i i waited till i got to the end of the book to look up the mags yeah because i had been so convinced that i was like it doesn't actually matter what google's gonna tell me yeah um and i think that's fun too like if you can there are things that it does like figuring out that that painting is enormous or hearing the song that's on but then also there are those times where it's like the perfect after dinner treat either way. Like you're like, Oh, this is the, Oh, right, mm. right, 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 right. Yeah. I guess, you know, it'd be interesting actually to poll a bunch of fiction writers and ask what they all think about this. Cause I could imagine some people thinking it was, it, it was something that subverted their goals. They're like, no, right. I want to describe it. I want to control your experience of this thing. And if I, you know, didn't fully describe it or described it a certain way, that was like part of the plan. It'd be I, interesting. I don't mind um, either experience. I just want a writer to choose a lane. I really don't Ooh. like when there's like, you know, they'll say like, uh, he was listening to, you know, Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen and watching a action movie on screen. And it's just like, well, show me both. Like, tell me <laughs> right. both. Right. Um, especially if they're they're going to like describe the plot of an obviously real movie. Just like say, tell me what it is. Yeah. Um, I don't or keep it all in that don't give me any titles or anything or com- make them all completely made up but i want i want one of the other <laughs> <laughs> what would you call that that's sort of like secondary world status management like you if you're in Ooh. like middle earth you know it's all just made up cuz mm-hmm. it's of course it's made up if you if it's perfectly realistic well even then there's a lot of choices to make about you know yeah do you name the brands mm-hmm. do you mm-hmm. Do you name the movie? It's and it has it does it has kind of an outsized effect on how it reads. It really how does. It like happens in your head. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're definitely going to read something different if something says like Tide detergent or like just like laundry detergent. I, I have feel a, like you're saying different things about the world. I have uh, vivid memories of reading books, novels, um, like novels for adults when I was younger, and I didn't listen to a lot of music growing up. I don't know why. I just was like a musical and including pop music i didn't know what any pop music was and so of course sometimes 
uh, they'll reference songs and sometimes they'll even drop in the lyrics assuming like lyrics of very popular songs assuming that their readers will sort of be yeah. humming along and to me it was just like atonal <laughs> poetry just be like oh i know what do those words mean and i remember feeling bad i was like mm, i'm supposed to be getting something here and i do not get it you have to be careful deploying the real world cultural reference yeah i think eugene lim was very careful um and it was very in intriguing every time that he would make something completely up like i was i would sort of sit up and pay attention i forget what he called new york but he did have a diaspora city yeah yeah which like that happened and i was like oh wait oh yeah and then there was some other reference to something that's an obvious iconic new york and i was like okay yeah i see yeah it's it's funny. I, I do think that um, I didn't, while, while I wasn't always connecting to it, I was always admiring it. Um, and it was always doing something really interesting on the page, whether or not it always connected to me. Um, but I mean, I always say this. I always think this when I'm reading an unconventional novel. You write an unconventional novel, you receive an unconventional response. Ooh, so uh -huh. like, I think that like he's all right with like you picking and choosing some of these things like, it might not all work for you, <laughs> but that's okay with him. And you know, it's 160 pages yeah. like, and like huge font. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. I love You really feel like a speed reader. While I'm you're holding <laughs> it in my hands now. And I just, this book object of this dimensions for me is basically ideal. Yeah. Like I it's just, perfect. I think these are great. Yeah. Do we want to, um, do we want to recommend some other books? Yeah, have? sure. Let's do it. We read some pretty cool books. We recommend you take a look. Yeah. Do you want to start? You never start. Sure, I'll start. Um, I was thinking about this when I finished Dear Cyborgs, um, and I realized... This is one of those books that I really want and I know that it's missing from my library and I'm not sure if I lost it, if it was lost to the sounds of time or if someone stole it from me. But it's this um, collection of Fletcher Hanks comics uh, called I Shall Destroy All the Civilized Planets. And it's this collection of this very idiosyncratic, very bizarre uh, comic artist that was like, lower 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 of anything working in the um the golden age and maybe into the silver age and it's very very bizarre um you know planets are just destroyed at will for no reason and um all of the uh like evil plans are s ridiculously huge uh, i recommend reading and checking out this weird it's it's really fun cool and it definitely reminded me of some of the team chaos stuff in dear cyborg Z um <laughs> so robin do you want to yeah definitely um want me to keep it in the family because okay. we're still here in fsg offices um i only read fsg books <laughs> you know, clear um uh we we're talking about the virtues of these small whippy books so of course i will recommend a enormous like super doorstop of a book um it's called hild h-i-l-d it's by Nicola Griffith. It's, for me, probably a top 10 book of all time. Wow. And, and I always think of it as winter approaches because it is like the winter book. Uh, it's this great story set in like 5th century England. Um, you know, 
I guess you could say superficially games of thronesy, Game of Thronesy, because there's politics and you know princesses and things like that. But it's super realistic. I mean, it's very much grounded in history, but totally riveting, totally compelling, and totally absorbing. It's this big book, like many, many, many hundreds of pages, and it's one of those ones that like it's dark outside, and you're halfway through, and you've been reading it for a long time, and you're just so into it, and you see that there's still so much yet to come and that makes you so so happy so, like, <laughs> excellent hild is like the great winter read it's funny i uh i ended up with three copies of hild somehow so i think and i, and <laughs> I still haven't still haven't read it so i think it's finally time to um yeah wow uh drew um in sort of the the weird blurring the line between tech and analog, um, there's this company I've talked about on the show a couple of times, Serial Box Publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are largely, it's app-based. They've been publishing through uh, Saga Press, some omnibus editions, but uh, they release a story once a week uh, and they treat it like a TV show. They have like a writer's room of six or eight writers and each one takes an episode, but they're all sort of arcing out the season together. And their inaugural serial, Book Burners, is coming up on the end of season three. And it, it has hit its stride in the way that you want the best television to. Like, mm. they've really, they have done it. Everything they set out to do, um, they have achieved in terms of building characters, in terms of merging voices, while still having individual writers feel like you can, when you read a Max Gladstone story, it feels different from when you read a Lindsay Smith story or something Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's the same characters they all speak with the same voices Um, it's a team of magic fighters uh, working for the Vatican tracking down books that bring evil magic into the world simple concept and it has they've they've done some great stuff and I'm super excited to see how season three ends in just a couple weeks. Wow. That sounds great. The fact that they're bringing that writer's room mechanic or that sort of production system sort of back into prose is so interesting. And I think like actually like quietly very radical. Yeah. Um, I am, I find it personally, I'm, I'm like slightly, I feel sort of slightly challenged by it. Sort of, it makes me feel a little bit itchy, but, but in a, but in a good way, like that's a good sign. Right. Like that's some, that's something interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to check that out for sure. Yeah. It's really cool. Dumas wrote like that, didn't he? Count of Monte Cristo and he had a writer's room and he would just assign sections to his writers. See, this is the thing I'm, I'm coming to realize that, you know, here we are in the FSG offices. We're literally surrounded by walls and walls of these very august volumes. And I'm sure the vast majority of them were written in this sort of very like kind of 20th century literature way of like a mind and a typewriter (laughs) and like the words. But on both ends of that weird little bubble, we have all these other ways of producing books like with groups of people or serialized or Mm -hmm. whatever. And then now it emerges again. And it turns out this isn't like new stuff. We're just maybe escaping from a weird little prison of like only one way that we understand to make a a book or a novel. You don't have to head into the little room. Yeah. Mm. Sounds nice. You can have a slightly larger room. He says in the little room. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't believe that we've hit 75 episodes, Drew. I know. This is is pretty momentous indeed. And and for our 75th episode, we've been invited into the FSG offices where 
we're talking about an author that we talked about in, I think, our first episode of the show. Yeah, I think so. Uh, this is pretty cool. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's really worked out for Nice us. work. <laughs> we were talking earlier about how, like, for a goof, it's sure going on pretty well. Yeah, it's for a goof. It is still a little bit of a goof. Well, yeah. When um, it gets serious at that point, it's like, uh, what you we might as well doing? just go to the little room and write your book. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we really thank all of you for listening and, and making us continue to want to make more episodes. Like, people wanting it has made us want to make it, which yeah. is really cool. And uh, we, you know, to 75 more. Indeed. And um, thanks to all of the people who've been on the show. Most importantly, right now, Robin to you, Sloan, Robin. Thank you so much for your books and for uh, coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you guys. It's a real honor. And uh, all of you, thanks for listening. And we'll be back in a couple weeks, just like always. As we do. Yes. And, uh, I don't know, be good to yourselves and to each other. Yeah, that's nice. Well, I'm there.